and verse 1. 2 Samuel, chapter 23, and verse 1. Now these be the last words of David. This is the last prophetic utterance given by David as he approaches the end of his life. So these are the words of a dying monarch. They therefore can speak powerfully to us today in the present situation. These be the last words of David. David the son of Jesse said, and the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel said. Here we are reminded of David's origins. He came from a lowly and obscure background. The son of Jesse. He was just, a humble shepherd boy. But he was exalted and anointed by God to be the king of Israel. So he went from working on his father's farm to be the king. When Queen Elizabeth was born, It was never expected that she should succeed to the throne because her father was not in direct line to the throne either, being the younger brother of Edward VIII. Edward, however, abdicated in 1936, having been on the throne for just a few months. His brother, George VI, ascended the throne and he was, of course, the Queen's father. So here we see the providence of God overruling in the succession to the throne. Just as was the case with David, who, when he was born, was never expected to succeed to the throne in place of Saul. David was the youngest of the eight sons of Jesse. And he came to the throne from relative obscurity. This is the providence of God. We read of God's providence in this respect in the book of Daniel. In Daniel 2 and verse 20. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his, and he changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge 
to them that know understanding. God is sovereign in all these occurrences. Now this first verse refers to David as the sweet psalmist of Israel. David, as the Lord's prophet, composed psalms under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We continue to worship God and to learn great truths from David's compositions to this very day. They are part of the word of God. Now, one of David's roles as the king was to encourage the true worship of God in the land and to give to the worship of God the place it ought to have on a national level. That is the role of the monarch. David, for his part, introduced into the temple service certain stringed instruments. Also in his early youth, he was famed for his own skill on the harp, which he would use to the glory of God. He improved the then existing instruments, elevating their character so as to be adapted for the temple worship. So David used his musical skills to enhance and dignify the worship of God, not to make music into some kind of idol, which is always the danger, but simply to help the people in their worship to God. So David is described as the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Hebrew behind that phrase can also be rendered the lovely one in Israel's song of praise. The lovely one in Israel's songs of praise. In other words, David was the man whom God had enabled to sing lovely songs of praise in celebration of God's grace and glory. So as the composer of Israel's songs of praise, David promoted the spiritual edification of the kingdom. What a blessing to a nation to have one who truly fears God as the head of state. Even while Saul was still king, it was David who led the country's troops into battle. We read in 1 Samuel 18 and verse 14, David behaved himself wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. Then in verse 16 of that chapter, all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. 
And so David drew down upon himself the deep affection of the people. As his conduct was characterised by God-given wisdom. And in this, he is a pattern for any head of state today. David is also described in this first verse as the anointed of the God of Jacob. Now, the Hebrew for anointed is Messiah. David, in his victorious leadership of Israel, prefigures his infinitely greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In David has been founded the royal dynasty, which will never end. The dynasty which continues in our own day to exercise an absolute sovereignty, not just over a single nation, but over spiritual Israel, the church, and indeed a sovereignty over the whole earth. All peoples today are subject to the throne of David. Our own monarchy is subject to the throne of David. This throne is now occupied by him whom David foreshadowed, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is seated at his Father's right hand in heaven. Just as Old Testament Israel once sung of David's kingship, bringing them peace and security, so the Christian rejoices in Christ, who is the one anointed by the God of Jacob as the Saviour of men and the King of kings. Now David says in verse 2 here, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. Verse 3, The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me. So David is about to impart what God has first spoken to him. David has brought security to the nation only because the Lord, Israel's true rock, has exalted and established him. God does not compliment David on his royal dignity, but he rather tells him what he must do. The head of state is under a profound obligation before Almighty God. And this is what the head of state must do. And so we direct these words in loving concern to our new king. Verse 3 
He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. That is the pattern for true kingship, for true leadership. And we must declare these words to our new prime minister. He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. Now David may well be speaking these words to his son Solomon, thus passing on precious counsel on the task of governing the kingdom. What must the new king do? He must rule in the fear of God, observing all righteousness. Now Psalm 82 tells us that God is closely watching over what governments do. He is watching. Psalm 82 verse 1. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. Gods there with a small g means the magistrates of the land. How long will ye judge unjustly? And accept the persons of the wicked. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. God is watching what governments do. So governments, politicians, judges, magistrates, kings and heads of state are all accountable to the Trinitarian God. This is no less true in our day than it was in David's time. Now, let us think about the benefits of having a godly leader, a godly ruler, a godly government. Verse 4. He shall be as the light of the morning When the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds. A righteous king will be to Israel as the morning light, as the banishing of night, as a morning without clouds, the sign of a day of much warmth and comfort. As Solomon would come to rule in the fear of the Lord, What national blessings would be poured out? And the same principle will apply to Solomon's successors, the descendants of David. The benefit deriving from the rule of David's royal line will be seen chiefly, however, in the future reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, of whom these words are also prophetic. The Lord Jesus is the bright and morning star who ushers in the full light of day. He shall be as the light of the morning when the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds. Accordingly, The father of John the Baptist, Zacharias, 
prophesied of the coming of the Messiah in Luke chapter 1 in the following way. Luke 1 and verse 78. He refers to the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. This world languishes in the satanic darkness of sin and unbelief. But Jesus Christ, as the dayspring, as the rising of the sun, as the morning star, announces a new dawn for lost sinners. Now verse 4 here further speaks of the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Just as bright sunshine after rain causes new shoots of grass to suddenly grow up and flourish and how much we've seen that just lately. So will Solomon's kingship bring prosperity and well-being if and only if he rules in the fear of God. As the light of the morning, which is most welcome after the darkness of the night, so was David's government after Saul's lamentable reign. And so, likewise, thinking of Solomon succeeding David, Solomon will build positively upon David's reign if he remains faithful to the Lord. So David foretells here that through his royal line, God's blessing will come upon the nation. Just as willow trees by rivers flourish, so will Israel flourish under Solomon, but supremely under the kingship of Christ, when the faithful remnant of Israel will have become the church of the new covenant. This world of unbelief is dry ground. It's an arid wilderness. But the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is the means and the only means of transforming the wilderness. And so, as much as we admire the monarchy and are thankful for it, it cannot save us. Only the gospel can transform the nation. Now moving on to verse 5, David says this, Although my house be not so with God. David here confesses that his house has not always ruled over God's people in righteousness and in the fear of God. Furthermore, none of the kings of David's line would perfectly meet 
God's standards of righteous obedience. There would be one or two fairly good kings, but even they would fail and there would be many wicked kings following on from David. Although my house be not so with God. And so David here acknowledges that God's ideal is not being lived up to. But he also says this, Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. If Solomon, remember David is counselling Solomon, the new king, If Solomon, during his reign, remains faithful to the Lord, there will be national prosperity. However, after that, there will come dreadful rebellion against God and decline in the nation. But David has this wonderful hope. He knows that great blessing will ultimately attend his royal line. He knows this because of the covenant which God has already made with him, described here as an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and sure. Now, to understand Exactly what this covenant is, we need to go back to chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God says to David through the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel 7 and verse 12, these words. When thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers... I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will set up thy seed after thee, God says to David. Now those words apply initially to Solomon succeeding David who would build the physical temple. But the words apply supremely to the Lord Jesus Christ, who builds the true eternal temple, which is his church. This covenant with David concerning the rule of his house and the ongoing nature of his house cannot fail an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and sure. So Christ will ascend the throne and will reign forever. And even today, this covenant promise to David is being fulfilled as the risen and ascended Lord Jesus rules over this earth from his heavenly throne. And so Peter, on the day of Pentecost, 
explained to those first century Jews how God had spoken to David about the coming of Christ the King. Acts 2 verse 30. Acts chapter 2 verse 30. David, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ. So there in the New Testament, we are told that David prophesied about the eternal kingship of Christ and the resurrection of Christ from the dead. We also read in verse 5 here that David states, For this is all my salvation and all my desire. For this is all my salvation and all my desire. David's strength as a king, his salvation or deliverance from his enemies, is due solely to God's faithfulness to his covenant promise to preserve his royal line. A line from which will come the supreme and ultimate ruler whose kingdom will have no end. Now David, for his part, desires to be obedient to the Lord so that he might fulfil what is required of him under this covenant that he has made with the Lord. So when he says, this is all my salvation and all my desire, we see here the head of state longing to be faithful to God. Not to move with the times, not to please the people, but to be faithful to the Lord. And often, and indeed usually, pleasing the people will mean not being faithful to the Lord. And so this is a vital truth for the new monarch, the new king, to know and realise that his task is not to please the people and give the people what a generally God-rejecting society wants. His task is to serve the Lord. What a national blessing it is for the nation of Israel to have this head of state who fears God. Now David knows that this covenant is not just a covenant about the royal line, but that it looks further to the covenant of grace made with all believers. So David is speaking here concerning Christ and the grace of the gospel. So this is not just a covenant about there being kings in David's line. This is a covenant about Christ coming and bestowing grace upon all who repent 
and believe in him. Now, David further states regarding what God is doing with his royal house at the end of verse 5. Although he make it not to grow. David is admitting here that the Lord has brought chastisements upon his house. Although he make it not to grow. Although God as yet hath not made my house to grow and flourish with glory and prosperity. There were all kinds of problems in David's reign. Various rebellions against him. He was usurped from the throne by his own son, for example. So there is not a growing and flourishing at the present time. David knows that because of his own sins, God has sorely afflicted his own person and his own family. And he knows that God will likewise chastise his sons and successors for their sins. Nevertheless, he has this great support and comfort that God will keep his covenant. He will preserve David's royal line until the coming of the Messiah. The Lord Jesus Christ was of the house and lineage of David. So David has this assurance that God will be faithful to his promise to preserve David's offspring and to raise up a king in that line who will eternally rule in righteousness. David, therefore, is looking forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let us return to verse 1, where we read of David being described as the anointed of the God of Jacob. We read of David's initial anointing as king in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 13. 1 Samuel 16 and verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. Now, the anointing using oil was not an empty ceremony to make a person a king, but a divine power went along with that outward sign. The Spirit of the Lord came upon David. He found himself inwardly advanced in wisdom and courage and concern for the public welfare. He was bestowed with the qualifications of a prince as the Holy Spirit equipped him for his office. Now, this is fascinating. And this is indicative of the national blessing we enjoy in the fact that our own queen was anointed with oil according to the biblical pattern. 
The anointing was part of the coronation ceremony in 1953. The words spoken to Queen Elizabeth included the following. Be thy head anointed with oil as kings, priests and prophets were anointed and as Solomon was anointed king by Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet. So be thou anointed Elizabeth, blessed and consecrated queen over the peoples whom the Lord thy God hath given thee to rule and govern. And so we see how thoroughly Bible-based the Queen's coronation service was. The following prayer was then offered up during that service. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who by his Father was anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows, by his holy anointing, pour down upon your head and heart the blessing of the Holy Ghost and prosper the work of your hands, that by the assistance of his heavenly grace you may govern and preserve the people committed to your charge in wealth, peace and godliness. And after a long and glorious course, of ruling a temporal kingdom wisely, justly and religiously, you may at last be made partaker of an eternal kingdom through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord. That prayer was prayed over Queen Elizabeth at the beginning of her reign. What a national blessing to have such a constitution which allows such a prayer as that which openly speaks of the kingship of Jesus Christ. And how we must pray that the forthcoming coronation service of King Charles III will be similarly and totally Bible-based without the corruption of any multi-faith elements whatsoever. We honour and respect our new king. But we do not know what his spiritual standing is. We pray for him with much sympathy in his current state of mourning. We pray that the Holy Spirit will equip him to fulfil the task ahead of him. But above all else, we must pray that he might know the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ for his eternal benefit. We must pray for our rulers and heads of state. We saw this in our New Testament reading, 1 Timothy 2 verse 1. I exhort, therefore, that supplications, prayers, intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness 
and honest. So as we pray that our leaders, including our new Prime Minister, will be guided by the Holy Spirit, such guidance does not, of course, make any individual a true believer with a regenerated heart. So God can guide leaders, but that does not mean that they're saved. It does not mean that they are truly converted. So what we need above all else is a mighty work of saving grace. We need it amongst the population generally, but we also need it amongst those in high places. Such a national blessing will only occur if there is vigorous and uncompromising preaching of the gospel. Fearless preaching, that is the only way it will happen. So we rejoice that we still have a constitution very closely linked to biblical Christianity. But we must also recognise, because Christians are realistic, Christians face up to what is really happening. We must recognise that in practice, these constitutional blessings have not prevented our nation from becoming thoroughly secularised and disobedient to the Lord. We must also remember that the powers that be are perfectly capable of using the monarchy to further their anti-Christian agenda. They are capable of doing that, and they will. Those who advise the monarch generally belong to the world and generally embrace its Bible-rejecting values. So the crown is not exempt from the pressures to conform to and follow the spirit of the age. May I give just one small brief example of this? The historic Royal Palaces Trust, which looks after various royal properties, including the Tower of London, Kensington Palace and Hampton Court, this trust is answerable to Parliament. This trust, looking after these royal palaces, openly supported Pride Month earlier this year. That's just a brief example of what is happening and how the anti-Christian forces can use the monarchy against biblical truth. So we must be on our guard. Now we thank God at this time of national mourning for Her Majesty's long, faithful and exemplary service and commitment to this nation. That, that commitment is indisputable and we thank God for it. We also Thank God for the Queen's willingness to speak publicly of her Christian faith. Nevertheless, we must realise 
that Britain's spiritual condition right now is dire. And we cannot rely upon historic institutions and traditions as much as we might admire them to save the day. The message of the National Church, which is the monarch's spiritual counsellor, is nothing more than climate change and the fashionable tenets of cultural Marxism. So we are up against a corrupted national church and it's the national church who is giving the new king spiritual advice. So how we need to pray. What a task we have as the remnant to uphold the sole authority of Scripture. It is only preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners which can rescue this nation. As the servants of Christ, we have a duty to confront our leaders and call them to account for ignoring the commandments of God and pursuing the fashions of God-rejecting man-made philosophers. And so we must tell our leaders, be they politicians or members of the royal family, we must tell our leaders, as David once declared here in verse 3, he that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. Without the fear of God in the hearts of men, a fear engendered by the vigorous preaching of biblical truth, our nation will not survive. So we thank God for the life of Queen Elizabeth. But the greatest thing that we can do now is to go forth and preach the gospel with all of our hearts because the gospel is the nation's only hope. Amen.